Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the distinct privilege of welcoming Mr. Rick Hotchner to the show. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Hi, Thomas. I'm doing really well. It's nice to be here. Nice to be here as well. Today, we'll be discussing racial polarization and the political divide in the US. And I can think of no better interviewee than Rick to, to speak about these things, since Rick has done quite a bit of work on these subjects. And uh, I'm just briefly going to go over uh, introducing you, Rick, to those of you who may not know. Rick's educational background includes a BA in Foreign Affairs and Russian Studies at the University of Virginia. He's formerly worked as an Executive Manager and Operations Officer at the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. He retired in 2018 after 28 years of service. His current work is as an advisory board member for two companies engaged in the national security space, American Binary and Leavenworth. His pro bono involvements include volunteer time for a number of courses. He mentors veterans, other national security professionals, and students. And he works on a Minnesota-based education reform effort to embed instruction on higher-order thinking skills and traditional social and emotional learning into the K-12 curricula to prepare students for the demands of work in the 21st century. Perhaps most significantly, he serves as an ambassador for Braver Angels. The last one of which is particularly important for the topics today, as and I'll let Brick explain in a moment. Braver Angels is an organization which delves deeply into the question of the, uh, the political divide in the US and has come up with some novel, interesting findings and workshops and results and different kinds of methodological approaches on how to possibly bridge that divide, which is what we'll be talking about in further detail today. But to begin with, Rick, could you go over for our audience today, just sort of very roughly how you came to be involved with Braver Angels and perhaps what it is you do with them today? Sure thing, Thomas. Um, so um, my wife and I uh, were both um, in uh, overseas services, uh, myself with CIA and, and my wife with the State Department Foreign Service as a diplomat. Um, and she and I uh, come from different uh, ends of the political spectrum, not not different ends, but she's uh, liberal, left of center. I'm, I'm conservative, right of center. Um, and so we've had to deal with those differences in our in our relationship. Um, you know, when we first met, um, that wasn't such a big deal. It was a point of curiosity, but um, as it seemed like with each passing election, um, as the stakes for the country seemed bigger and bigger, um, the need for us to uh, recognize that these differences between us were um, significant um, grew as well. Um, so I, I retired in 2018. Uh, and my wife um, and I were in Dublin uh, when she was considering retiring uh, in 2020. Uh, and she was thinking about different things that she might do uh, when she retired. And she was particularly drawn, uh, I think, particularly after the experience of trying to represent our country overseas, um, uh, you know, in the years before 2020. Um, she was drawn to the idea of um, doing something to mend our social fabric. Um, but we talked about drawing upon our personal experience of being in a, in a, a relationship, uh, you know, a, we would say, you know, mixed political marriage, um, and, um, and also leveraging the professional skills we had used during our careers, uh, to, um, to help other people. We, we were looking back on the U S and hearing about strained family relationships and friendships falling apart and, you know, 
people having their, their Facebook friends deleted and stuff like that. Um, and so, so we, that was an idea and we, we had talked a little bit about what that might look like in, in practice, um, you know, talking to, talking to, um, uh, other couples, maybe going to schools, um, going to community centers, that kind of thing. But we, we didn't know how it was going to work in practice. And then one night I was, uh, watching a panel discussion, um, that ended up, um, being chaired by, um, John Wood Jr., who is, um, the national ambassador for Braver Angels. So I noticed that, uh, title under his name and I looked up, uh, the website and saw what it was all about and decided, uh, and, and showed Barbara immediately That's my wife. Um, and, uh, and we were like, this is it, this is what we need to be doing. Um, and so, so pretty much jumped right in. Maybe it would be helpful if I just mentioned what Braver Angels is and does at this point. Um, so Braver Angels, um, is a, a nationwide grassroots movement slash organization, um, has over 50,000 people involved in all 50 States. Um, the purpose of which is to depolarize our country. Uh, we bring together people of all political views, perspectives to, uh, have conversations, uh, that are designed to facilitate understanding, uh, help the participants see the humanity in each other and find common ground if it exists. Uh, we do this by providing free workshops um, that teach the skills needed for those conversations. Uh, and we also provide other free offerings that give people an opportunity to uh, practice those skills and to learn more about polarization and different perspectives on polarizing issues. A key point is that the, the, the point of all of this isn't to change anybody's mind or values or political positions. The point is uh, for us to change how we treat each other as Americans. Um, so that we can come together, communicate well across differences uh, to get a better understanding of our problems and work together to solve them, find find solutions to them. And, and that is that is the crux of the problem, let's say, because I, I find the the unusual thing is not so much that you have a relationship whereby one partner has a different view than another. I think this is normal and quite natural, even in extends beyond politics. The unusual thing is that we find ourselves at a time, and I, I would include not just the US in this group, but at a time in which we assume or it's becoming harder to imagine how a relationship might work with these differences. And I think that's quite emblematic in a way of, of the times that we're living in today, which are highly polarized to the extent where being in a relationship with someone of a different political, let's say, persuasion is already a problem that needs to be addressed and needs to be fixed. And I think this is uh, highly representative of the times that we are living. But I want to jump back to Brainver Angels and the work you do there in a moment, because this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, about the problems that Braver Angels is trying to address. Ever since I've stumbled into Braver Angels myself and, and have done a bit of research into what they do, which, by the way, I highly recommend uh, my audience and anybody who's listening here today to check out the Braver Angels uh, webpage and YouTube. There's some incredible work that uh, that you guys are doing, and we'll be getting into that in, in a second. But one of the things that has definitely reached us across the pond, so to speak, and sadly, they're not always the, the happiest of news. The big news, of course, that, uh, that broke out in May of this year was when an 18-year-old assailant murdered 22 people, mostly children in Robb Elementary School in Texas. 
the news came out that the school will now be permanently closed. Teachers will not be returning as, as a result of the horrific crime that happened there. But it is the 16th as such mass shooting in Texas in the last decade alone. Now, what struck me was that rather than a collective clamor for restrictions, such as those we might expect in Europe from a similar incident, inevitably the so-called thoughts and prayers will be quickly replaced by a confrontation between uh, people for and against firearm legislation. In fact, in New York, I believe the uh, the courts have struck down and, and rather increased, let's say, the rights afforded by uh, concealed gun ownership although you, you might know more about this case than I do. But the point I suppose that I'm trying to illustrate is that there's this immediate dichotomy and immediately it enters into the political debate. And of course, within that, we have the binary divisions of the of the Republican and the Democrat positions on, on, on gun ownership. In fact, just hours after the attack, Shannon Watts, founder of Mums Demand Action, tweeted, fervently lifting Uvalde up in prayer while refusing to do a goddamn thing to stop gun violence is why this keeps happening. And I think she might have echoed a very similar type of resentment that the left or the Democrats feel when these kind of events hit the media. On the other hand, a tweet by arms manufacturer Daniel Defense, who coincidentally manufactured the weapon used by this Texas attacker on the 16th of May, just over a week before the shooting, encouraged parents to teach their children how to use firearms. I think here on the social media representation of these two tweets, we see a very clear dichotomy and a very clear dividing line in American politics and ideology. But I'm interested in how we've reached this point where cold-blooded murder is part of the legitimate political divide. It's something that struck us in the UK as incomprehensible because it's simply outside the realm of politics and in the realm of, of crime, simply. And does this objectivization of body counts only fuel more hatred in the online political discourse? What are your thoughts on this, Rick? Um, there, there, I have a few thoughts about this. Uh, it, it would, and, and I'll, I'll note just up front that this is a, an incredibly complex issue. Um, I think uh, it, one thing that occurs to me is that um, there is not a divide over um, the question of, you know, whether cold-blooded murder is a good thing or not. Um, that's that's not where the divide is. I think, in fact, that's an example of common ground. Uh, everybody believes that's bad. I think that the what we find on this and, and many other issues um, is that while we might agree on the goals, and we don't always, but where where we do agree on the goals, we don't agree how to get there. Um, that's where the divide is. Um, I think if you well, if you add to that um, that I think more and more Americans, because of media and politicians and some, I'll say, some media, some politicians, some activists, um, foreign influence, um, you know, all of which can be pretty divisive, um, that we, we, we see people who, with whom we disagree as caricatures. Uh, we, we have stereotypes about them. Um, we don't actually listen to them much less do we talk to them and listen to them in that, in that way, 
you know, I, I always say we, 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 the people are contributing to our polarization by how we think about and talk about and talk to people with whom we disagree. Um, and it's preventing us from having the kinds of conversations and the kind of dialogue that we need to have to be able to solve these kinds of problems where we do have common ground. We, none of us want to see school children die. Um, but, um, we have caricatures of each other, caricatures of each other's positions on this topic, um, and it prevents us from really fully understanding the nature and causes of why we are where we are when it comes to gun violence right now. And if we can't understand the causes, we're not going to understand the, the fixes either. It's definitely a complicated subject, but what I, what I like that we can rescue from this is something that you've briefly alluded to. And if I might just paraphrase you horribly here, Rick, it's almost as if we all strive for good, but those on the other side almost become bad if they don't agree with my vision of good. And perhaps instead, we should focus on how we, we all want good. And, and that's, the, that's what unites us all. Right. Your good might be different from my good, but if we can all recognize that there's a, a fundamental human quality to want to reach something good for everyone, then perhaps that's a commonality that, that, can, that can bring people together. But we'll be exploring that subject more further down the line. For the moment, it would be good for our discussion and uh, to set the right pace for this discussion to see what those dividing lines are exactly. I know we've we've just gone over very briefly on gun violence, which is, uh, as you said, it's a very complicated subject. But there are other areas of fundamental disagreement. Yeah. And these might be similar across uh, from the UK to the US, but some might be more firmly uh, American areas of disagreement. And here I've listed a few that I can name off the top of my head, but you'll correct me, Rick, if, if some of these may not apply. And, and I think for me, at the very root of them is, is a question on human nature itself. You know, whether we take the Hobbesian approach of many men or wolf eat wolf, or a, a Locke type uh, of discussion in which human nature is, is good, but society or other governments are that which corrupt us. So that's, that's a question on whether the human, as he comes into the world, is a good or a bad, a trust or an untrustworthy entity. And I would argue that perhaps from the Democrat position, the human nature is fundamentally good, but it's corrupted by all these other things in society. Whereas perhaps the more Republican tradition might say, man is inherently untrustworthy, right? Which is why you know, you'd better have a gun concealed on you because you never know when these things might, when you might need to defend yourself from bad people out there. And so this is a fundamental area of disagreement. Corruption in Washington seems to be another one, although you, you might argue both left and right in the US uh, agree there is some level of corruption. The question is, of course, what to do about it. Uh, right. And, and, and Trump certainly had his novel ideas and drain the swamp and the elites and the lobbying and all the rest of it. Religion, abortion, immigration, healthcare, police spending, inequality, affirmative action, climate change, LGBT rights, drugs, voting, and perhaps many, many more. Now, does Braver Angels and the work you do with them, do you routinely look at these areas of disagreement? And is there any sort of learnings that, that you've had when dealing with very sensitive, very divisive subjects such as these? Will they be divisive forever? I, I think there will, will always be um, you know, different perspectives on these issues, um, but, but I think we are capable um, 
of going back to a time where there was just a such that um, such a thing as just wedge issues um, as opposed to um, issues not where people just disagree, which as you said before, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but um, where people use the disagreement um, as a, as an identity indicator about those people on the other side and reason for recriminations against them. So before I answer the Braver Angels uh, question, um, I just wanted to um, express agreement with your, your point about um, Hobbes and Locke. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have deep knowledge of, of their work, um, but um, but your observation is correct. Um, I think of a book like A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell um, or The Great Debate, um, which is about Edmund Burke um, on one hand and Thomas Paine on the other. Um, basically, they, they, they take that, that view the, the, on the, what Thomas Sowell would call the constrained um, vision of humanity um, where there's no such thing as solutions. There's only trade-offs. Um, you know, there, uh, man is tragic. Humanity is tragic um, as opposed to perfectible, um, like um, the unconstrained vision would say. Um, and I, I, so I think that does land um, very much um, in the, um, you know, the people on the right side of the aisle would tend to um, have a more constrained vision of humanity people on the left would tend to have a more unconstrained vision. And in the great debate that uh, Yuval Levin was talking about um, with Burke versus Payne was, was that as well. And he argues that out of that debate uh, emanates um, the liberal conservative divide that we have now. Um, Braver Angels um, is nonpartisan. So um, importantly, we don't take a position on any of these issues. Um, that said, we provide a forum uh, within which people can talk about these issues, and, and that's that's done less in the context of workshops and more in the context of those other free offerings that I talked about, book and movie discussions, um, debates that we have, and I can get into to more details in these uh, on these uh, town halls. Uh, we have podcasts, um, you know, where, like I said, we. Uh, we delve into the question of polarization, but we also delve into different perspectives on polarizing issues of the day, like all those ones that you mentioned. Um, the the belief, and and I, you know, this is true of my experience since uh, doing outreach with Braver Angels. I think it's also backed up by by polling and studies and so on that um, people who are divisive in 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 some way in our country who are unreachable, not so much in terms of what they believe, but what they believe about people who disagree with them are somewhere like maybe 10 to 20% of the population. Um, 80 to not, that would mean if that's right, that 80, 90% of the, 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 the population is um, open to other perspectives, uh, open to engaging with people that have other perspectives. Um, but I think some of the dynamics in our political discourse right now in our culture um, are encouraging people to keep their heads down um, because there can be material consequences for saying the wrong thing. Um, it, it, the, a, a lot of the messaging um, tells people you're too divided for it to matter. There's nothing you can do. Um, and so I think 
to, to a great extent, people are, are not engaging who need to be engaging. Part of our message when we go out and talk to folks is uh, that everybody needs to engage. Uh, and, um, you know, this is this depolarization effort is one in which we all have a stake. Um, we are not in a good place as a country right now. Um, we are being marginalized by people on the extremes who are sucking up all the oxygen and trying to divide us. Um, and that means that we, who are the great majority of people, need to not allow ourselves to be marginalized and need right. to engage. So, so what Braver Angels is then is a vehicle for people to engage and to learn how to engage in a constructive way. And it's almost as if, despite only, let's say, 20% or thereabouts of people in the U.S. having, let's say, extreme, unshakable positions, Despite that low number compared to those that have an open mind, it seems as if the extremes dominate the discourse. And not, not just the discourse, but the politics. Like the loonies taking over the asylum in the sense that a relatively small percentage of people have now intoxicated the debate so thoroughly that the vast majority of people, and I would include myself in this camp, who are open to open to persuasion in the, in the essence that let the facts decide, or perhaps one day I could be swayed more towards an opinion if, if a better argument is made, let's say, kind of had to, as you say, keep our heads, keep our heads down because the, the debate is both on the Republican and the Democrat side, highly ideological and, and, and extreme in many ways. I think both sides can be accused of shifting respectively to the left and to the right over the years. And it's interesting because if these statistics are true, it's it's not that people have shifted these positions as well, but rather that the parties are almost begging us to to shift with them. And it'd be interesting to see if, if we are or aren't shifting alongside with them. What we do know is, uh, for example, the Pew Research come out with a poll saying that there's a growing divide between the values of Democrats and Republicans and that there's growing animosity towards the other party and less acceptance of political diversity in marriages by parents. And these are stats that I actually pulled out of the Braver Angels website, which has uh, some incredible resources that are free to visit and are worth having a look at. But how did we come to this state of affairs, Rick? When was the point of American history in which we are growing ever increasingly divided among the two political parties and that within that division also our values are being separated and animosity is growing between Democrats and Republicans. There's a number of different sort of causes and forces. This has been uh, something that's been growing over decades. Um, you know, I, I can think of, you know, back in the, the 90s, late 80s, even, you know, um, some particularly contentious Supreme Court nominations. Um, uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, you know, when the Republicans um, took over uh, the House um, and, um, you know, he changed a lot of rules about the, the way uh, Congress works. You know, the the animosity, I think, between Clinton and Republicans, um, you know, the the election in, in 2000, you know, the, these were all sort of initial rumblings, if you were um, each each of them um, not very pretty in their own right. Um, but not yet to the point where we've gotten in, in recent years where the, the the polarization and the toxicity has gotten um, so much worse, um, so much more intense. Um, I, I think there's a, a, a number of things, like I said, there, there is one thing I think is important is sort of a change in tactics. Um, 
you know, probably started in the nineties and continued, um, to consolidate since then, uh, which is, it used to be in the U S in presidential elections, um, and, you know, other, uh, other, you know, Congress and senators and so on that during primaries, they played to their base. Um, but then in the, uh, in the November elections, they came back to the center. They tacked back to the center because they had to try to read. They, they assumed that their base was with them. They needed to try to get, you know, see if they can get independence and peel off some of the opposition to vote for them, like Reagan Democrats, for example. Um, over time, um, parties instead have um, stopped reaching uh, to the center and um, focused more on turnout uh, for their own base. Um, so you have not only the, the, the base um, having disproportionate influence over who gets elected uh, or who, who goes to the election from the primaries, but you also have a disproportionate um, uh, influence from the base on people getting elected in November and therefore how they're going to govern so they can get reelected. Um, and you know what that means then is uh, politicians, you know, as, as somebody who's, you know, conservative myself, I'll, I'll criticize my, my own side. Um, uh, anybody who's a rhino, uh, which you might know is a Republican in name only, um, that's somebody who reaches out and tries to work with Democrats um, and sometimes even finds uh, common ground in, in uh, things on which they agree with, with Democrats. Well, those are Republicans in name only, and we're going to primary them. In other words, when they want to run again, we're going to find somebody to the right of them um, and defeat them in the primary. So we have a better candidate in November, whether or not that candidate wins, we're going to have a more purist candidate and the Democrats do the same thing. So I think that's, that's one thing. Um, along with that, you can add all the sort of, you know, tribal um, instincts that humanity has the identity um, that goes along with that. You know, this is my team versus that team uh, very often um, uh overwhelming the whole sense that we're all on the same team as Americans. There is something similar to be said for in the UK and, and many other countries as well. Labour and the Tories are two behemoth parties. They're the only ones that realistically will get power. And because for so long it's been these two parties, they've created what you might call tribal affiliations. So something very similar to the US. There are entire segments of towns and areas in the UK that would only ever vote Labour, and and same with the Tories. Although well, that's recently been questioned, but only as a result of Brexit, which pushed a lot of the the so-called uh, red wall into the blue, and there's been some shenanigans. But otherwise, throughout history, we find that uh, in the UK there's been strong affiliations from workers especially or, or more working class areas with the Labour Party and the opposite might be true for for the Conservative Party. And so but but they do create cultures uh, with time and especially as the Labour Party is, is more affiliated with socialist movements and causes, there's a stronger sort of uh, let's say culture that has surrounded itself with being a, a Labour voter which extends to beyond just voting, but uh, you could even argue a lifestyle based around Labour principles. I think this is this is very similar to being a Democrat in, in the US in many ways. But I think the key difference that I can see is that because the Labour Party and the Tory Party are not 
as ideologically separated from each other as the Republicans and Democrats are, have become. That might go some way into explaining why there is much less animosity to be seen between being a Tory and a Labour voter in the UK. And, and mind you, there is. But for a very left-leaning Labour supporter, having a friend that's very much a Tory, uh, let's say, stalwart, it might be a bit unusual because there really will be difference of opinions. But I think towards the majority of voters, which uh, have historically flipped between Tory and Labour, depending on which election in the UK. So that, again, that 70, 80, 90% that you were alluding to before, Rick, of let's say the undecided or swing voters or whatever you want to call them, you will very likely have friends and family that have voted different to you in, in one election or the other. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to cut communications and brand them as a devil and crucify them. But I think a lot of that might be explained there because essentially the, the Tory party and the Labour party will probably agree on more than they disagree. It's just that those don't become contentious topics. Mm. So, so both parties, for example, will oppose capital punishment, uh, along with a whole litany of other things. They're outside of politics because nobody's arguing for it. But that just goes to show how there are many areas of common agreement because one is centre-left and one is centre-right, and neither is pulling too far into the extremes, uh, at least hypothetically. But I think what's happened in the US is that both the Democrats have pushed further to the left and the Republicans have pushed further to the right. And that has left an entire alienating void in the middle to the extent that it might really be a problem for a lifelong Democrat voter and a lifelong Republican voter to, to acknowledge the, the, the points or, or the validity of one another's political views. And so just offering my two cents as to, as to why we might see differences across the pond here uh, when it comes to... Um, political fragmentation, for lack of a better word. So what I would say, Thomas, um, first of all, I, I agree um, with the, the dynamics that you've, um, you've described. I think that's all right. Uh, I would just say that in, in the same way that I think there's an impression um, that the American people are more divided than they really are. I think there's an impression that the parties are as well. Um, certainly one of the, the forces at play that I started to talk about before is, is politicians and activists. And, and that's not just party activists, that can be special issues activists. Uh, and many of these people are, are trying to serve the common good and they're good people. Um, but there are many who engage in divisive tactics um, and are pulling the parties apart uh, and, and, and to the extremes and, and therefore uh, away from the center and, and creating disincentives for uh, the parties to work with each other. But I think there are, are a lot of uh, people in the parties who, who would like to find a way to, um, to, to work with the other side, if only because that's how you get a majority um, to vote in favor of something. I mean, the, for me, polarization is the biggest problem we have because it prevents us from solving any problems in, in an effective consensus way. Um, and, you know, if, if the parties can't work together, they can't get a majority on anything. Um, I think one of the indicators that, um, there are, uh, that, that the parties have, have, there's an impression that the parties have, have, um, gone too far to either side, um, uh, is that there's something like, there's this new notion in the U S of being politically homeless. In other words, you know, there used to be a certain segment of the population, something like 10 to 20% that, um, was self-described independent. It's something like 40 now, um, percent that, um, you know, says that, you know, 
including for, you know people who were independents before and now people who have left the Democrat or the Republican Party um, because of what the, the leadership and the loudest voices in those parties are calling for. Um, but I think there's the voices in the parties those people would support are to a great extent silenced or silencing themselves uh, because they're scared of getting primaried. Um, you know, those people are, are looking elsewhere. Um, and you're right though, we're kind of stuck in a way because we have a two-party system and um, people don't have other options. Um, so part of, part of another thing that's contributing to this um, is the political system itself, the primary system itself that keeps giving us candidates in November that um, we don't like. And so just as often you end up voting against somebody you really don't want to see, um, you know, instead of voting for somebody that you really would like to see. And to a great extent, the arguments of the candidates um, are uh, basically criticisms of the other side rather than making the case for why you should vote for me and what I could do if you put me in power. It's almost like a relying on the platform that uh, you're voting for rather than the individual which you might abhor or, or personally disagree with. But this this concept of political homelessness is is really interesting, Rick. It's not something I had um, I really stopped to consider before. But I would add on top of that as well to see what you think. Not just the political homeless, but the homeless homeless hmm. is of course a, a growing problem in the U.S. A very visible problem, and and how the economical landscape factors into what we're seeing in terms of politics. Now, America, of course, was was founded on the premise of early colonists taking vast swathes of rich arable land with low government intervention and lots of freedom more than anywhere else in the world to organize their own communities. Prosperity followed for most of American history and resources were abundant. Was the common ground easier back then? Because in these times, opportunities seemed endless, the so-called American dream. And is it harder to find in an age of stagnant wages, less opportunity, political drama, worldwide conflict, COVID, and tougher international competition, China, India, etc. In other words, Rick, do economics play a role into political homelessness and social disharmony? How do you see it? It's a great question. Um, so once again, I would say that um, how we got to where we are, economically speaking, um, is is a really um, complex question. Um, so, um, so while I will answer your question, um, I think I might um, the premise of how we got to where we we are, I might describe differently. But I'll take your point um, that um, you know our our economic realities and the um, consequences of them have, have changed over time. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, we still have freedom. We still have space. We still have resources. Um, we still, um, over the years, um, have had a great deal of economic growth. We have a great deal of wealth. Um, uh, that said, we have some serious fiscal problems. Um, we have, uh, dislocation, um, you know, communities and, and towns and cities that have basically failed um, because of uh, competition, whether that was 
within the U.S. or whether that was from you know trade with other countries um, and increased competition abroad. And we haven't you know always done a very good job of of managing uh, those consequences um, and the the real impacts they've had on on real people. Um, while I would argue that you know certainly well most Americans don't travel. Um, not even within the U.S., let alone overseas. Um, and so there's a lot of Americans that don't have, can't put our problems in, in the wider perspective of the world and, and the problems elsewhere. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that I have observed is there's, there's poverty in the U.S., there's poverty outside the U.S. Um, that can look very different. Um, and frankly, I think much worse outside the U.S. Um, poverty matters, relatively speaking, too. So if you're if you're poor in the U.S., you might have um, you might have a better life or a better situation than somebody who's poor in Uganda, for example, uh, or Latin America, you know, places where I've spent some time. Um, but if you're you're not comparing yourself to or elsewhere, you're comparing yourself to the more well-off where you are. Um, and if you then have, um, I'll say, I won't, I won't characterize them. If you do, if you have people who take a populist approach to politics uh, in, in an effort to get power, you not only have the real grievances um, that come from that that perspective of my life is not going well. Um, and there are people that are better off than me, and that's not fair. Um, and I want better for myself and my family. Um, but then you have somebody come in and find villains for you. I think that then um, does start to contribute to the polarization um, and has contributed to the polarization. Um, so I think it's not the, the economic realities alone. Um, it's, it's the economic realities and um, some mismanagement of them, how, how people then think about those things. And um, I'll say some um, understandable vulnerability um, to, to messages um, that would find villains, you know, for them to blame. And, and then, you know, out of that, you know, it becomes very easy to demonize, so on. And I would add here as well, Rick, that uh, I agree with with all the points that, that you've raised, but I would also add the technological dimension. And I think this is not looked at enough because often, you know, we hear that communication is easier, more prevalent than before. We're having this podcast over Zoom, as I'm sure uh, much of the world, especially after COVID, is enjoying uh, the, the instant communication, social media, Zoom, you name it. In a few clicks, you can trade with markets around the world in nanoseconds, video calls from the International Space Station even. And yet, I think a lot of the problems that we might be facing now with polarization in the United States, you know, if they're not inherently a problem of land and space and competition, and I think a lot of it can be uh, rooted back to technology, although I don't know how much. And I think part of the problem is that I don't know how many serious studies have been done. The tech companies that own, basically own the virtual space, uh, Google, Facebook, and the rest of them, have so much power 
an unprecedented amount of, of power, and not just economical power, I mean, knowledge power, the scariest kind of data, and the ability to harness and use it. And, and these are companies, right? It's for their own for their own gain. They're not going to be questioning themselves, let's say. But my question, and, and we can only ever take a stab in the dark here, so I, I fully appreciate that, but um, what went wrong with communications technology? I remember when I was growing up, going in school, high-speed internet was just sort of making its way in. And, I, you know, I remember the dial-up modems, as I'm sure you do, Rick, um, the, the horrible sound they make. I saw that transition into high-speed internet uh, when I was just about old enough to understand that difference. And, of course, I've seen the difference that it made over the last 20 years, the incredible things that have come out of it but also how far we are from the promise that it had in the late 90s, in which we were promised a revolution in the way that we would communicate with one another and the understanding in uh, the friendships that we would be able to cultivate across the seas and in eliminating cultural barriers and misunderstandings and et cetera, et cetera. But instead, we have seen a world in which polarization is getting worse, not just in the United States. I know we're talking about the United States today, but I would argue internationally. And I am beyond certain that it at least part of the answer lies in these massive social media and communication giants, which have done anything but improve communications. And so do you think corporate greed, advertisement, and fundamentally algorithms have their part of the blame? Yes. Um, in, in short, um, the, the business model of media and social media. So there's a, another really good book called The Outrage Industry. Um, and what it argues is that information is what used to be scarce, but now information is plentiful. Whether or not it's good information, we'll put aside, but there's lots of information out there. What's scarce is our attention. And so the business model of media and social media companies is to try to tap into our emotions by um, producing content that drives fear and outrage. And with that, um, trying to get us to click, trying to get us to pay for subscriptions, um, which you know, not only has the effect of it has the effect on the consumers of news and social media, um, but it also has uh, an impact on the companies themselves. Um, who have, and here I'm talking about media in particular, that have moved away from what I think we would have used to understand as a, a, you know a journalistic standards um, of you know balance and objectivity and and so on, a, a very clear separation between news and opinion, and instead uh, curating their content um, for particular a particular audience so that they can play with the emotions of those, of, of that audience in particular, you have to, you have to make a choice um, because if you're, if you're having balanced content, um, then you're probably not going to be torquing people off. Um, but if your content makes the case, not only about the right opinion on the issue, but also the people that hold the opposite opinion or different opinions, um, then you're likely to, to get people riled up. Um, so I think that is that is a, a big problem with social media. Um, there's a, re a really good um, article um, that Jonathan Haidt 
um, wrote in the Atlantic um, a month or so ago. Um, and Jonathan Haidt happens to be um, uh, on our advisory board at Braver Angels. Um, but he talked, um, he, he sort of laid out a case for how social media has um, adversely impacted our, our political discourse and our, our, our culture. And, and it's, I'm, I'm forgetting some of the particular things, but he, you know, for example, he talked about the point at which one of the companies, I don't remember if it was Facebook first or Twitter first, um, added the like button or the reshare button where, you know, with, with those kinds of mechanisms, then things can go viral very quickly, um, which then gives a relatively small number of people a disproportionate amount of power to, you know, come down hard on somebody that they view says the wrong thing. And, you know, then there are all the the ramifications that come from that. So that I, I think you're you're spot on that that uh, technological development not only does it call, cause disruption and dislocation in the economy, but um, specifically with regard to communications, it has adversely impacted our our media and social media models, um, which are certainly contributing to to our polarization. And it's, of course, it's a discussion not just on the quantity of communication, which there has been a lot of, but early on in, in your comment, you said, well, there's an abundance of data today, um, but not necessarily all of it is good. In fact, probably very little of it is, you know, the, the signal and, and most of it is just the noise. And in the case of social media, the uh, the like buttons or the reshare, the, the virality of it perhaps is not the best a possible method of separating quality, you know, good information that educates people about the a reality rather than, uh, let's say, the, the clickbait um, viral stuff. But let's talk about what this quality communication means, because we need to get this right if we are going to fix some of these problems with uh, social media and, and, by extension, polarization. In their book, The Enigma of Reason, cognitive scientists Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber put forward an argumentative theory of reasoning, claiming that humans evolved to reason primarily to justify our beliefs and actions and to convince others in a social environment. And the key evidence for their theory includes the errors in reasoning that uh, people will experience when they are, let's say, solitary and they are prone to their arguments not being criticized. And then we might develop logical fallacies out of that. And fundamentally, how groups become much better at performing cognitive reasoning tasks when they communicate with one another and can evaluate each other's arguments. So this already strikes me as something very similar to what you and Braver Angels are trying to do. Debate is a fundamental aspect of communicating with one another, not necessarily convincing one another as the argumentative theory holds. I have the right idea, I'm going to convince you. But rather, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber are putting forward that, hang on, we reach better conclusions as a group, as a society, as a nation, when we interrogate ourselves with those views. Criticize, let's find the flaws. And then we come up with better solutions. So I, f I find this is really interesting because what we're pointing at here and, and where it relates to social media is that perhaps rather than focusing on the legal aspect or the algorithm aspect of an individual's freedom of speech and thought, would depolarization work 
would the efforts to depolarize society benefit more from critical reasoning debate and peer examination in schools and otherwise? And is there simply not enough quality communication and fearless critique in American society? So I think there's unfortunately too much fearless critique. Um, there's not enough thought that goes into it. Um, but I'll just know, I, I, I haven't come across that book, but again, I'll, I'll mention Jonathan Haidt, um, who has a similar thesis um, and a, a, he expounds on it in his book, The Righteous Mind. Um, and he advocates um, a nonprofit that he started, the Heterodox Academy. He advocates for that kind of an intellectual approach um, where I think he says something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but as individuals, we're stupid. But as a group, um, you know, when we're we're challenging each other, we're listening to each other. Um, that's when when we can be smart um, if we're if we're as a group looking for the truth as opposed to using our intellectual capabilities to justify that, which we already believe. Um, and I, I do think that kind of an intellectual approach is, is really important. Um, not only, but I think there's a, a couple of things ab about it. Well, first of all, it's only really possible if you have a level of trust, which is not something we've discussed yet, but um, that is to, to be able to have conversations like that you you need to have trust uh, in the good intentions of your interlocutor, um, which is one of the most one of the reasons the polarization that we have is so corrosive because it is undermining trust. It is savaging the other side, demonizing them, alleging that they're trying to destroy the country. So, how, how can you you know have a good faith conversation where you're really trying to drill down on an issue um, if you don't? trust your interlocutor. So, so part of what Bray Rangel is trying to do just in the first place is generate opportunities for conversations where people can get, get to know each other, develop some rapport and realize this is actually somebody who has good intentions and I should give them the benefit of the doubt and hear them out. So, but, but I think these kinds of conversations are, are important for uh, depolarization and for problem solving um, because again, if as, as individuals, as Jonathan Haidt would say, we're stupid, we're also not a majority. <laughs> um, so it's hard to get effective consensus, uh, solutions to anything. Um, if we're, if we're not talking to each other, one of the things Jonathan Haidt had a, a, an article, he's, he's Jewish and he was talking about a, a, um, sermon that the, the rabbi gave in his synagogue, um, and sort of the, the starting point for this is um, a, a joke, uh, I guess, in, in Jewish culture, um, that if you bring two Jews together, you get three opinions. Um, and, um, you know, Jews are um, famously argumentative in their culture, as I understand it. And um, there's this concept that the, the, the rabbi was talking about. Yes, that's funny. Um, but there's also another meaning to it. In, in Judaism, there's this concept of arguing for the sake of heaven. In other words, um, arguing to find the truth. Um, and if you have two people, each with their own opinions, engage in a debate, an argument, a conversation, whatever it might be, with that effort to find the truth, then at the end of it, because they've tried to understand each other, they've tried to listen to each other, they will come out of it with a third opinion. And that's, I think, that's the, the mindset that Braver Angels tries to, to teach. Um, you know, I have, I've had lots of conversations with people 
um, who have different perspectives than me and, and braver angels. And there've been times where they've, they've, you know, caused me to think about my own positions, but mostly what they've done is expanded my understanding of issues. Um, not only with, you know, facts, figures, things I hadn't thought of, um, or didn't know about, um, but also hearing the stories of those people and, and how they came to view things. Um, and that is a, a means of finding common ground, which can then be a foundation for finding win-win answers without having to change your mind. Do you think that has positive personal effects on your life, right? Because I often think now grown up enough a little bit to see some of the friends that I went to school with, who I think have considerably hardened and I would not be able to say that you know, their minds have remained open as when they were children and your brain is like a sponge. But something happens as people age, not everyone, but some people age. And I think this particularly affects men more than it does women, although that's just my opinion, that many men are prone to get harder and more jaded with age and, and viewpoints become closed and truth becomes solid and unchanging. And it's it's almost sad to see some people wither as a result of that, as because I think having a closed mind is one of the worst things you can do for your life. I've seen the effects of that, and it's not prissy. Do you think that one of the positive things about going to Braver Angels and doing this work of challenging yourself and communicating with others is that you become more open as a person? And it leads not only to having more truthful way of looking at the world and approaching reality, but also just a happier existence. Would you? Would you? What would you think about that? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the reasons these conversations in, in Brave Angels um, are so powerful is that um, right now in our political culture, when we talk to somebody with whom we disagree, we're, our expectations are that that's not going to go well. Um, and so when you go to Braver Angels and you have those kinds of conversations and they do go well, it's a really powerful experience, not only to have somebody listen to understand and to take on board what you're saying and to interact on, on that, that basis, but also because of the new insights that you take from it. Um, and that's, that in itself is exciting. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about is um, having a mindset where we accept that none of us is omniscient. Um, that means we all have more to learn, um, which suggests that um, going into conversations about anything, it's good to have a sense of humility, uh, a spirit of inquiry, some curiosity. Um, and if you're, if you're, your goal is to increase understanding um, and increase your knowledge uh, instead of trying to win an argument, um, that just makes for phenomenal conversations where, um, where you know, so much can be learned and so many connections can be made. And also another thing that's really powerful about it is almost invariably in a, at a time when we're constantly told there's no common ground between, between the two sides of the political divide, you know, in these conversations, we find common ground. Very often political, sometimes not. Sometimes it's about our kids um, or about our interests uh, or something about the community that we're in or what have you. But there's common ground um, that we can build from um, that humanizes us. And, you know, then is the basis of, like I said before, creating trust, creating rapport, creating a relationship. Um, and once you have that, um, then it's it's much easier to to have conversations across differences. 
and I want to jump into the, the the commonalities and the common ground and how to reach there in a moment. But before we do, Rick, let's touch down for a moment on radicalization, because I see this as, as a sort of a, a twin peril to polarization. And then the one follows the other and the other follows the other. They come together, two peas in a pod. And much is being said now, thankfully, we're opening up the discussion to new forms of media such as video game communities, Discord servers that are potential outlets for radicalizing youth and the rise of ultra-nationalist and white supremacist viewpoints, unfortunately, which seem to be resurfacing. And uh, there's been a few high-profile cases of uh, of attacks uh, in recent years. I've only been informed about Minecraft servers, apparently, being a source of uh, radicalizing for the incel movement, only in a previous podcast that we did here at MI Cynic, and that took me by surprise. And it's great that new media is is having sort of this spotlight in, in the popular debate. But I worry, and I'm wondering if the traditional media outlets are just as worrisome, even if we you know have put them on the wayside to make space for, for new media. And I think of two areas, two traditional areas or traditional media formats whereby radicalization is, is still occurring. And here, of course, the the hypothesis is that the more we radicalize people, the more we're going to have a polarized society. And so it's a problem. One of which being religious radicalization, but not necessarily just from Islam, that gets a lot of attention. But let's talk about Christianity. Christianity is often touted as a bridge between men uh, and also America's natural default cohesive factor, the good old Christian town with a water well and... Uh, with a main street and not church down the street. Uh, But is there any evidence that suggests certain Christian institutions, the FLDS, for example, are in fact further polarizing or radicalizing their congregations? And how can this be effectively tackled considering America's freedom of, of religion and the freedom of assembly and speech? And is this a big problem, Rick, or is this not a big problem in contributing to uh, polarization in the United States? I wouldn't want to venture to, to measure it, um, but it is a problem. Um, you know, back in 2015, 2016, uh, well, I mean, there had already been, you know, the religious right for, for 20 years or so, which, you know, I think um, not only because of freedom of religion, but freedom of, of speech and freedom of association, people get to self-organize and, and weigh in on the political process and that's all fine. Um, uh, but I think in, in 2015, 2016, um, when when Trump was running um, there, as I understand it, there became somewhat of a of a divide in the Christian church, sort of generally speaking, uh, in the U.S. Um, and and there is sort of an ongoing tug of war, as I understand it. My, my main source for this is David French, um, who is an evangelical Christian himself and writes about this, but. I think he is unhappy that um, a, a good portion of the Christian church in the U.S. has has gotten political, um, and that in so doing, they have forgotten or set aside Christian values to advance political causes that they care about, um, and probably most significantly, judicial appointments, um, I think, is how they how I understand that they rationalize or justify um, the what they're doing. But even that, I, I think he would say that they're using questionable means to bring about worthwhile ends. And but but that the more important 
consideration should be how they're living their lives and their Christian values and um, what they're doing. Therefore, he would frown upon. That's a, a an insufficient characterization of of what he says and of the issue. But the top line observation is that yes, it's an issue. Yes, there is an aspect of it that is contributing to to polarization because many of the people that you will find that have sort of crossed the line to what I would say is right-wing extremism have, have done so in part based on that force uh, in our culture. So, yeah, so so that's the one question. And then, and then you also observed about um, traditional media radicalizing. I think maybe Radicalizing might be a strong term there, but but it is they are contributing to polarization. And one of the problems with our polarization is that it is driving people to extremes. That's there's a push and a pull there though, because the polarization I think is leaving a lot of people feeling unheard, disrespected, misunderstood, and therefore disconnected from uh, the political process, from our political culture, and people who are feeling like that are then some of them anyway, are going to be susceptible to messaging from the extremes. And there are always people on the extremes who are, are going to try to pull them uh, into their orbit. Um, it's one of the things that, um, you know, we, there's this debate on whether or not cancel culture exists. I mean, for me, it's, it's pretty obvious that it does, but you know, in any event that there are, there are efforts to shut down voices uh, in our, in our country. And, uh, one of the things that we always say is that you can shut down voices and ideas, but they won't go away. They'll just go to dark places where everybody else, you know, thinks like them um, and they get each other riled up. Um, but that's, that's a feature of our, our political culture right now and is leaving people feeling like this. Let's talk about that, Rick, about cancel culture and radicalization. I think one point in which they meet is when we talk about racism and systemic racism or or how racist, uh, let's say, viewpoints and ideologies are passed on to the next generation. The progressives and perhaps some people on the left uh, might claim that, well, this is the result of systemic racism in America, which they argue is systemic because it's nationwide and it's infiltrated every aspect of governance and society and the economy and you name it. Do you see that this corresponds with Republicans, I would assume, when they're coming into Braver Angels? Is it more prevalent there? Do you think the current left media, MSNBC and other such platforms, get it right when they're talking about the prevalence of systemic racism? Or do you think they're underestimating it based on what you, that you've seen the people coming in? Or do you think it's just fairly accurate? And just one more, I know that's already a, a big question to answer there, but when we're talking about cancel culture, just want to add another question for you. Do, do you think that the United States has made praiseworthy progress in reducing racist attitudes and that this should be more commendable and that we should be continuing to foster sort of this uh, incremental progress? Or do you think the Trump presidency has shown that there's this implacable racism at the heart of America that goes all the way back to the Mayflower? And anyway, how has your experience seeing this face-to-face and close up with the cases and the, and the people that come into Braver Angels, has it shed any light on, on this topic for you? And, and could, you, could you maybe share some of your leanings for us? Sure. Um, so I want to be 
careful here um, to delineate, um, you know, my opinion from from Brave Angels because, like I said, Brave Angels is nonpartisan. So anything I say, I'm saying personally, not as any kind of a representative of Brave Angels. Um, I, I think that it, it the topic is relevant to um, to conservatives, people who lean conservative. We, we would call them Reds um, in in Brave Angels. Ironically, given that Reds during the Cold War were um, on the left, but in any event, because, and I'll say we, when we speak up in the broader culture, um, you know, we feel like we're, we're taking a chance. Um, and, um, I don't know that that's the reason people come to braver angels, although it's an argument that, that I'll make to conservatives, why they should come to braver angels, um, that there's, you know, 50,000 people here. Some of them are conservatives already, but you know, others have all kinds of different perspectives that, will want to talk to you and want to listen to you and aren't prejudging you, want to understand you, et cetera. This is a good thing. Um, this is an opportunity for us. Um, and I think, um, you know, conservatives who come to Braver Angels and engage in that way, uh, not only, um, you know, taking advantage of the reality I just described, but also listening themselves, trying to understand themselves, um, benefit greatly from, like I said, the kinds of conversations that we can have, the kinds of um, uh, treatment of polarizing issues that we get in our in our debates um, and book and movie discussions and, and so on. Um, so I think that is part of it um, in terms of at least how conservatives respond to the Braver Angels experience, whether that's part of the draw in the first place, I, I couldn't say. It probably depends on the person. Um, as for uh, do I think the media gets it right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of media. What I'll, what I'll say is um, that the, the mainstream media, which all, my, in my opinion, leans to the left, um, overstates um, the problem of racism in our country. Um, and sort of takes the Ibram X. Kendi view that um, we have disparities and disparities come from racism. Um, and uh, given the history of our country, it is systemic and institutional in nature. Um, and I, I think that's, that's all wrong. Um, I think we have racism. I think that is not a, a unique fe feature of America. I think that's a, a feature of humanity. Um, I don't, I don't subscribe to the definition of racism that um, only people who have power can be racist. All of us, um, it's part of the way our brains work. We, we are, we feel like we're members of tribes. We categorize others. We stereotype, we take short intellectual shortcuts. Um, so, so we all do that to each other and we need to be mindful of how we do that um, to each other. Um, so I think we need to be, you know, mindful of um, those realities of how the, the human mind works. I, I think the way the way I see this is um, influenced again by Thomas Sowell, who I mentioned before. Um, I think most in the most detailed fashion in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, um, where he talks about, um, you know, first of all, disparities between groups um, in in history are not the exception. Um, they don't need a special explanation. And uh, if we if we dive into those disparities and look for causes, we'll see that there's typically a, a complex array of causes. Um, so it's so while racism might be um, part of 
one of the reasons for disparities that we might see between different groups uh, in in the U.S. Um, it's um, a, a there might be um, no nefarious explanations um, at all. The explanations might be benign because that's the norm in nature is disparities between groups. Um, but even if you were to take um, uh, other, you know, the, the full range of explanations, benign, nefarious, what have you, racism might be one of them, um, but it, it, it doesn't tend to be the full answer. And that can only be adduced uh, empirically, which would be uh, Thomas Sowell's argument. Um, and so that's kind of where I am, that that racism exists in the U.S. We have a terrible history. To get to your second question, I think we've come a long way um, since um, the Civil Rights Act um, of, of 1964. Um, and, you know, certainly in terms of, you know, not only disparities, but the conditions that, that um, you know, some communities live in. Um, and I, here I'm thinking specifically of inner cities um, in the U.S., which are disproportionately black. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly work to be done, um, but this gets back to something else that we've talked about, which is that, um, if we're, if we're not able to have good discussions, good conversations about what's really the problem, what's really the issue, um, then we're not going to come up with the best answers for what to do about um, these problems. And, and so, you know, we, there's been a lot of talk in recent years you know, the, 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 the racial reckoning that we need to have, the national conversation that we need to have. I'm in favor. I, 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 will, I will admit five years ago, I didn't think that was necessary because I didn't think we had um, problems um, along the lines of those that are alleged. Um, but because those allegations have, have gained so much prominence and so many people believe in them, believe them, um, I now believe we do need to have a national conversation, but it needs to be a conversation. Um, people, you know, of all points of view need to come together and not only um, talk, but listen. Um, and, you know, what's to a great extent, what's happening now um, is that, you know, again, my, my point of view, but um, one side has decided, um, you know, what the right, point of view on this is the anti-racist point of view, we'll call it. Um, the other side is racist by definition. Um, and there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who are just keeping their heads down, hoping it'll go away. No basis for a national conversation. But, and I completely agree with you here, Rick, because I think, and I think Gen Z is actually, you know, if we can paraphrase or generalize for an entire generation is, is certainly guilty uh, in many instances of this, is of saying, okay, well, you know, you are a, a white heterosexual male you don't have an opinion here. It's the shutting down of the speaker and the shutting down of the debate. And ultimately, I think, you know, there's a good reason, there's a good argument to uphold that polarization is not a good thing, but it's a natural thing. And it might always be there. So the question is not so much how do we convince everybody to join the center and, uh, you know, how do we get all of these disparate opinions and views and parties and politics and, but rather it's, it's about tolerance. It's about I may not agree with your point of view, you may not agree with mine, but we tolerate the existence and at the very least the validity of, of those views that you don't necessarily agree with. And that's how we maintain a, a political environment in which there's at the very least a minimum modicum of respect. And I think the, the problem when you shut down 
views, or you shut down entire groups of society simply because they're that group. Well, that speaks to me like a, like a very big problem because then you're cutting off any kind of communication and, and that breeds more intolerance. Right. And then, and then people, like I said before, end up feeling um, disconnected from the conversation, from the, the process and start looking for alternate views, alternate ways of getting relief for what they want. Um, instead, we should be bringing more people into the conversation um, and trying hard to to make them feel welcome to it rather than shutting them down. And, you know, I'll, I'll, a different um, angle on what you said. Yes, I'm white heterosexual male. Uh, there are people who would say that I don't I don't get to, uh, to have an opinion on this. But there are a, a lot of black Americans who actually have influenced my thinking on this. Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, Wilford Riley, Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, the list goes on. Um, and but when they speak, they also get, um, you know, some characterization that means that what they say doesn't count either. Um, and and so, you know, it becomes um, that whole idea that, you know, I don't get to speak because I'm one identity. Um, they might be the right identity, but they're they don't have the right views for that identity. So they don't count it. It, it all, I, to me, shows how weak the argument is um, when um, you're not allowed to interrogate it, you're not allowed to engage in it, you're not allowed to have your own own opinions. Um, so um, I, I do think it's important in a country as diverse as ours, if we want, if we want to continue to be a, a single polity, um, then we have to make the country welcome to people of all uh, all kinds of points of view. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about, um, uh, you know, diversity of backgrounds and diversity of ethnicity and, and so on. Um, uh, you know, diversity of, of, of race, what we don't, uh, have much of a commitment to, um, is diversity of thought, um, which arguably is the most important in a democratic Republic like ours. Yes. And not just diversity, but fundamental values of respect, of tolerance, um, and as well of education. You know, I think it's, it's, it almost goes without saying, right, but it's worth stating it again. A fundamental necessity for a functioning democracy is an educated voter base. And I often go back to one of the, and I'm paraphrasing here, one of Socrates' famous sort of um, expositions on, on democracy. And it's interesting because he's he wasn't a big fan of democracy, Socrates, as many of the ancient Greeks were. But he disdained democracy because he thought it had too much of a high likelihood to degenerate into demagoguery, as they called it. So the, the corruption of democracy, and I, and I have to wonder whether if we could teleport Socrates into 21st century America, if you if would, uh, which would he call this, a democracy or a demagoguery? Hmm. Uh, you know, a, a democracy is a, is a place, is a meeting ground where we respect each other's beliefs, we tolerate each other's basic humanity or human rights, and, and we're equal. Not perhaps uh, economically or in talents, no, but we're equal in, in rights and in basic dignity. And even that seems to be up for debate these days, uh, not just in the US, but in many of Western democracies. Um, regardless, Socrates thought it was, democracy was too susceptible to, to degrade into this. And he summed up his thinking succinctly with this rhetorical question, which I'd like to pose to you, Rick. If you were on a ship out in the sea, 
and a new captain had to be chosen to commandeer the ship. Let's say the old captain got a bit seasick and passed away. Would you choose the candy shop man who promises sweets now without a care for the sickness that may follow, or a doctor who promises cures that are painful at first, but promise improved health thereafter? And of course, I assume you would pick the doctor, Rick, but the key to this rhetorical analogy here is, is of course, that the, the doctor is the correct choice. But it requires a certain amount of wisdom, experience, and short education, or as you might say, Rick, the attention span that we seem to be desperately lacking in the 21st century. But bearing in mind this analogy of Socrates, because I do think it, it despite it being a bit cheeky, that there is something really to consider here and relevant to the debate that we're having, this conversation that we're having today. Do you believe that American democracy has upheld this minimum educational level across young Americans? And is it relevant to the kind of polarization that we're seeing today, if not? In, in short, no. Um, and bef before I answer it, because um, I think it's relevant to this, I'll, I'll go back to your observation about, about Gen Z, or Z as we would say here, um, that I, I, again, I, I see them as, and I read, uh, I couldn't name it for you right now, but um, I read a good article um, a week or so ago that, um, in fact, I, I posted it on LinkedIn. Um, uh, the title was The Kids Are All Right. Um, and basically, it was talking about um, college campuses, um, which we all consider to be hotbeds of particular point of view um, and places where cancel culture exists and self-censorship self, self exists and so on. Um, again, it sounds like the couple of other areas where I've talked about a small minority um, that are taking this position and everybody else sort of keeping their heads down. Um, and, and so I don't think it's a whole generation, um, which is part of what gives me hope um, that we could um, maybe move beyond it at some point if, um, as John McWhorter um, says in his book, Woke Racism, if we could get um, sort of that segment of the population, um, rather than allowing them to marginalize the grand majority and instead um, get them back to a place where they have influence that's commensurate with their numbers, they should be able to weigh in. They should be able to have freedom of speech and, and you know, petition the government and, and have their point of view and all those things, you know, associate. Um, but they shouldn't get to shut the rest of us up. In that regard, um, then I'll move over to, to your question, um, which is I think we, we're failing um, with our education system um, in a number of ways. Um, the top ways, I think, is uh, our, we don't teach civics the way we used to. And so people don't understand, you know, students coming up through our system now don't have a good understanding of how our government is supposed to work and their role in it and their responsibilities even the concept of responsibilities as opposed to rights. Um, you know, right now, um, from lots of different perspectives, you hear a lot of people talking about um, the, the rights that we have and the rights that we, you know, demand, um, you know, get attention um, and are respected. Um, but we don't hear a lot about with rights come responsibilities. Um, I think we don't teach history very well anymore. We, we went from a, uh, a teaching of history that was arguably hagiographic uh, to one that is arguably f far too negative about uh, our country. Um, and um, and I, I, I would be in favor of a more 
you know, balanced uh, approach. Uh, we don't teach geography, um, which I, I think again um, hurts our, our not only our our sense of America and the world um, in the role that it has, but also um, you know for future citizens who who should be taking into account um, an increasingly interconnected world um, and America's place in it, um, America's commitments in it. Um, that's, I think that's a big failure. Um, and maybe that's just my point of view as somebody who's, you know, spent a good part of my career overseas and think it's important. Um, but I think it's important. Um, and then also, also I, I think that the, the final thing I'll mention is just, I think, and this has become a cliche, so many people have said it. Um, but I, I think the U S used to do a really good job of, um, teaching knowledge, um, but also teaching teaching kids how to apply knowledge, um, how to think critically about it, um, how to, how to do research, how to consider a number of perspectives, how to think through them, come up with their own conclusions and defend them. Um, and I, I think we're, our, our schools now do a lot more teaching kids what to think rather than how to think. Um, and I, I think that's a really, that might be the most important thing because you have, now kids that aren't like I tried to teach my kids to have a healthy degree of skepticism and to seek out different points of view and to think um, just as sister Christine uh, back at O'Connell high school encouraged us to do in our history class. And it's yeah. the most important thing you can give them, Rick. This right. is my personal opinion. I don't think we are effectively. The truth is that you're preparing them for the world mm -hmm. when you do that, because we don't know what the world will be in 20 years. In fact, anything you teach them in schools today will probably be outdated in 20 years. Right. But what won't be outdated is how to cope with the changes that are coming. And, and the best way to do that is exactly as you said, scrutinize and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's not to say that cancel culture isn't real. You know, I, I don't have enough data or evidence to back that up. I don't think anybody does. I think it's how you feel about it. I'm not so certain myself, but I will say that when I went to university, uh, it was New York University, mm -hmm. and that's where I did my bachelor's degree. That was a that was an incredible education for me. It was it shaped who I am today, and it was heavily based on critical thinking and reasoning. And I had world-class um, lecturers and professors there, and it was a great institution. And I'm sure many, many other of the world's finest universities, which are in America, are just as good, if not better. And so I think big element of this, this case, well, if it's not in the universities and if the schools are heavily changing the, the didactic approaches, and if parents like you are taking the time to pass on values of healthy critical thinking and skepticism, then how much of this thinking out loud here is, is due to a mass media that craves drama? It's like a fuel for it, right? It, there's got to be a problem and we've got to report it and we've got to make everything worse than it is. Mm -hmm. And in looking at even just recent American history, that the mainstream media, which has played a critical role in this manufacturing consensus, no, Chomsky and Herman uh, wrote in, the, in a seminal book in the, in the 80s, I believe. And we can go from obscene amounts of sugar and cereals to the uncritical response to uh, apparent weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to Trump's gaffes uh, during his presidency, which were reported to death on every kind of liberal outlet you can imagine. But despite their wide pockets and their wider reach, bridging the American divide seems to be even more of a challenge considering the mass media has perfected the art of influencing the public with 
political and dramatic and bombastic news that seem to only make the problem worse. Am I wrong here, Rick, in, in examining this as, a, as only adding more fuel to the fire? And does the embeddedness of this mass media in our, our economy, in our, in our way of life, have more to gain by exploiting this divide? How do you feel about it? It certainly seems to be how, how they assess it. Like I said, that seems to be their, their business model to, to divide and, um, and get people amped up. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with your characterization of the problem. I'm, I'm not sure what I would have to add to that. I think you said it well. Well, I promised that we would return to the issue of the common ground, and uh, this is where I'd like to start rounding off our conversation. Traditionally, this has been the strength of the USA, the common ground between disparate groups of different peoples that came from around the world, from Africa, from Europe, uh, from the ones who were there originally. This common ground was a glue to American society and the prosperity that that followed and that captured the hearts of freedom-loving people around the world. Debates and alliances and workshops that you are doing at Braver Angels, are they a part of the solution, in your opinion? And what is so effective about them? Do they reconstitute this common ground that seems to be missing? And what do they teach us about human nature? Well, I'm not sure how much of an answer I have to the last question about um, how they, what they teach us about human nature, but I think they take into account human nature um, the one of the co-founders is a professor at the University of Minnesota, Bill Doherty, um, and he specializes in, in family therapy. Um, so while um, Braver Angels offerings aren't therapy, um, they uh, draw upon communications and conflict resolution skills uh, that um, are um, are valuable to have in, in you know amidst um, differences within a within a family where. Um, you know, communication could have become toxic, could have bro- broken down altogether. So I do, I do think it's part of the the solution. I think the question is whether you know we can scale this in a way um, that you know I, I talked about that eighty to ninety percent enough enough people. Not you know maybe some of them engage in braver angels, but more I'm talking about engage in the political discourse in a braver angels way um, that we can um, sort of reach a tipping point where um, the the grand majority of people are no longer marginalized by the loudest voices. um, And we can, again, pull together as Americans and ask for a different kind of politics. Um, And I can get into some of the different offerings like you asked, but um, in that regard, I want to mention a new initiative of Braver Angels, which is called Braver Politics, where we're bringing um, uh, what we do in terms of teaching skills and giving people an opportunity to use them to elected officials, candidates and staffers, um, both to improve communication um, and conflict resolution at that level and between them. Uh, and uh, and constituents, um, which actually reminds me of one other point to make about the media, um, which is and, and a point that I thought was particularly good is that um, the media is always looking for bad news. You know, one of the things my wife says um, when we're when we're presenting for Braver Angels is that you know how many school board meetings happen uh, around the country, um, but you're not going to see the news report. Uh, you know that a school board meeting went really well. 
Uh, you're going to see that a school board meeting, you know, it, that parents were screaming at the school board members who were screaming back or, you know, whatever. That's that's what you're going to see on the news. And so we get a disproportionate um, uh, sense of the level of negativity in the country and the level of toxicity in the country, because that's what gets reported. Another another great um, uh, book on on this um Factfulness gets into some of these these tricks that our minds play uh, on us, uh, the biases that we have. In any event, so on Braver Angels, um, maybe I could talk about some of the some of what we do, so you can um, I can explain why I'm saying that I think it's a, a difference. So uh, there's there's a couple of things. One is a red blue workshop, and another is one on one conversations. Um, they can be between uh, reds and blues. They can be between uh, rural and urban voters. Uh, intergenerational. And also um, white and uh, people of color, um, and in, in in that workshop and in those one-on-one conversations, um, that's you know a specific opportunity um, to get to know somebody with from a different perspective and you know different backgrounds, different experiences, um, and have really good conversations about coming at issues from from the you know those different places, and that's you know th- those are really the most I think powerful experiences. Uh, aside from then going on to, you know, talking about a book with a people uh, with people from a range of of perspectives, We're talking about a movie, uh, our debates, um, which you know we think of debates and we we think of you know a resolution and people arguing for and against and somebody's going to win in our debates um, where there is a resolution. There's people two people at the beginning that will argue for two people against, but then it's opened up to everybody in attendance to make statements to ask questions. The point of it isn't for anybody to win. The point is for everybody to leave smarter on the issue, to hear different perspectives, to hear people's stories about how they got to their views on the topic. So, so you know, basically, one of my colleagues calls it the work of citizenship, um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why, if we can get enough people engaged in this kind of effort, again, whether they're members of Braver Angels or whether they're somebody who's been inspired by somebody in Braver Angels to act differently. Uh, as they engage in political discussions, um, you know, that's that's how we're going to make change. Ultimately, it's we the people who have allowed things to get to this point. I think it's we the people who will get ourselves out. Um, th- I'll also just want to mention the skills workshops. Um, so there's skills for bridging the divide, um, which teaches the mindset of having uh, conversations where you're trying to listen uh, to understand uh, in a way that the other person feels heard and speak in a way that makes it more likely that you will be heard. Um, there's depolarizing within where you reflect on your own views of people who think differently than you about how you talk about them with your own in-group and you practice skills for how you can, you know, when a conversation with people in your in-group about those people goes off the rails, how you can bring things back and instead of having the group demonizing people who think differently. Um, there's families in politics. So if you if you think about, you know, politics uh, overlaying family dynamics um, that can be complicated in their own right, um, you know, that's a, a workshop that helps people navigate those, you know, challenges within within families, whether that's a husband and wife like like Barbara myself, or um, you know, uh, nowadays, and it's true with with a couple of my kids um, that see things very differently than me, and I have to own the fact that before Braver Angels, uh, our conversations were not very good. Um, we t- typically ended in rows, um, and um, and it was because we were trying to win um, and persuade the other person. And I- ironically, 
um, uh, if you're sincerely just trying to understand, it's more likely that the other person that you're talking to is actually going to be willing to uh, to listen to what you actually have to say and maybe even change their mind. Um, but those conversations with my kids have gotten uh, so much better um, because we've, we've had that discussion about, let's not talk about politics this way. Let's talk about politics that way. So this is really what Brave Angels is doing. It's, it, it, it's, it can be life-changing for the individual and people have used that terminology. Uh, it can be um, a real boon to communities, which is kind of where alliances come in to communities that are, that are drawing upon what Brave Angels has to offer. Um, and then it goes on from there to how we're interacting with elected officials, candidates, and staffers, um, and the kind of influence we can have on them at all levels of government. It's, it's an incredible organization because really at, at the root of it is, is a civilizational mission. I'm not sure if that's uh, the correct word for it, but it's a civilization building mission mm-hmm. without necessarily the religious component of it. But it's it's what Freud would consider the antidote to chaos, mm-hmm. the antidote to the, the chaotic society, the barbarous society, the destructive element of man. And this is the eros element, right? This is the this is the foundation to which civilization can exist, our desire to understand, to tolerate, to work alongside one another. And I firmly believe that it works on a personal level just as much as it works on a massive national level. But at the root, it's the same seed of mercy. And I'd like to think it's the seed on which America was founded and Britain and many other countries as well. It's it's the the, the realization that we live in a society of common rules, common values, and it can only prosper as long as we are willing to work alongside one another. That doesn't mean erase the other's identity or convince the other or have them join your group. Um, you know, these are ultimately destructive tasks. But democracy rests upon a, a feather, and and that feather is is the feather of of the courage of understanding one another, of tolerating one another despite our differences. Mm-hmm. It, it's a sensitive task, but I think if one engages on it on a personal level, like you've just explained, Rick on a family level, the benefits are, are obvious, they're instant and it's clear. But it's a commitment because so often it's so much easier to throw out the baby with the pram, so to speak. My way or the highway, and I'm right. And, and one becomes harder and harder on those views as you get older and older. And and it's a seminal task, it's a difficult task, but it, it's such an important task. And it feeds into my last question that I've got for you here, Rick, and in the same spirit and and also uh, one of these impossible to answer questions, but I hope you'll indulge me as, as you've been doing so incredibly over this podcast together. And uh, well, it goes like this, from the Salem witch trials to the Sot Dread decision, from the Capitol Hill storming to the McCarthy purges, America has not always stood as the beacon of freedom. Are there hiccups in America's mission, or does this promise depend entirely on those ready to work for it, like your work at Braver Angels? Well, certainly, um, I would characterize those as as, as hiccups. Um, you know, we 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 have a tendency in in America to swing, um, you know, from one one extreme to another on some things, um, and uh, or to overreact. Um, to to threats or problems or, or what have you. Um, but ultimately, and I've argued this for a long time, um, you know if you if you drill down on the problems that we have, um, ultimately, I think it comes down to uh, to we the people. and and so 
I do think um, for uh, our democratic republic um, to persist, um, it will or it won't based on the the work that we the people do uh, or don't do, um, the level of um, civic engagement that we have and the kind of civic engagement that we have, that the the understanding that the rights come responsibilities. Um, you know, a, n- a number of founders um, you know, talked about um, what kind of a, a people um, is needed for uh, a democracy or a republic, uh, they said, um, to persist. Um, and it's, it's that kind of a people, a people that is a people that is civic minded, a people that um, accepts the ideas and ideals and processes uh, envisioned in our, our founding documents, for example, um, a, a people that are, are willing to be uh, tolerant of differences. I think all, all these things are, are important. Um, and, and, and ultimately, you know, if you have government for the people, um, by the people, et cetera, then, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of responsibility put on the people and, and we have to execute that responsibility, uh, for our, our country to persist. And I think, I think right now it's not to say that there aren't problems with the system, but again, I think if you drill down, um, on that. We get the system that we that we deserve. We get the the system that we um, accept. Um, Sorry, Rick, to cut you off there, but does your experience personally give you hope for a less polarized America in the future? It does, um, just based on what I've seen it be able to do at the level that we've had impact so far. Um, but again, in a country of three hundred thirty million people, um, we've got to grow a lot to have the kind of impact that. Um, that we need to have. Now, happily, there are a lot of other people that are working in this space. Um, and, and so it's not just up to Braver Angels. I think Braver Angels is making some unique contributions, um, but there are a lot of people that are, that are engaged in, in the work of depolarization. Um, and I think um, there are more and more people that are speaking out about, you know, unhelpful points of view that are contributing to, to the polarization um, either because of the, the divisive nature um, of those those points of view, um, or how those points of view characterize um, not only American history, American institutions, and what kind of a country we are now. Thank you, Rick, for sharing your thoughts. Unfortunately, this is the time where we're going to have to wrap up this podcast. However, I would like to say that it's an incredibly brave initiative at Braver Angels, and it's a way forward to all of the issues that we've been discussing today, which may seem unsurmountable, but it's because of organizations like Braver Angels and people like you that are doing the heavy lifting that goes on there. There's a path forward to to restore what America used to mean around the world, to restore the promise of leading the way forward for the world's democracies. We wish it all the success. We applaud you for your work, and we would love to have you back here another time at MI Cynic. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to chat about these things with you, Rick. We very much hope to see you again for another discussion. I'd love that. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Thomas. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. 
Thank you so much and have a great day.